Welcome back to the Foundations Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Link, and today we're going to dig into an issue that American churches and American Christians are facing almost daily. We're going to look at a couple of questions and issues around the issue of sexuality and LGBTQ and the church. I don't mind telling you, uh, this makes me a little nervous. I am a Christian. This is a Christian podcast. I strive to look at things through the lens of the Bible. There are a lot of previous episodes that explain why that is, and this is an issue that can be quite controversial. In fact, I'm often surprised at how many Christians view this issue and how they view certain scriptures. You see, on June 26, 2015, the United States Supreme Court ruled 5-4 to four in the case of Obergefell versus Hodges. And the court held that same-sex couples could exercise the fundamental right to marry in all 50 states. This decision was celebrated by supporters of same-sex marriage and raised questions for religious conservatives about the future of the church and a society that is increasingly moving away from previously established moral norms. Now, back then, I was really surprised to see the number of rainbow avatars on my social feed. And many were supported by people that attended the same churches that I have, that have heard the same messages that I have. For better or for worse, the church is changing on this issue. It is apparent in the world today that many disagree with me, and that's okay. I pray that you will listen to what I say and then go research and find out the truth yourself. I'm not going to go through why I think the Bible teaches homosexual behavior is sinful. There are books written on this entire subject, written by smarter people than me. I believe that study of the passages about this issue will show that the traditional view of marriage is correct. But since we have generations who don't have a biblical worldview and don't know how to study the Bible, and we now live in a society that says these behaviors are not only okay, but they should be celebrated, it's not surprising that many in the church are also shifting. Frankly, it's easier to move on this than to hold a traditional view. People no longer just accept that the Bible says homosexual behavior is wrong, and many think the church's position on gay marriage is wrong, and alarmingly, according to a recent Barna study, almost 20% of the people surveyed think preachers should be compelled to perform marriage ceremonies that go against their religious values. Now, this podcast is about biblical worldview. How does a Christian navigate this issue? When confronted with arguments, how do we respond? But well, we should respond with love and with truth. It's not just about being right. It's about our purpose in this world. So I want to look at three questions Christians get asked about this issue. The first up is an argument for some who think that actually the church has too much focus on same-sex relationships. In fact, they would say, why are you devoting an entire episode on this? What's the big deal? Um, it goes something like this. Why is homosexual behavior and gay marriage such a big deal for the church? There are only seven passages of scripture that specifically address homosexual behavior. Why does the church ignore the rest of the Bible to focus so much attention on this one issue? And that's right. There are only seven primary passages to talk about it. Genesis 19, which is the story of Sodom. This is actually where the term sodomy comes from. Leviticus 18.22, which is a prohibition of a lying with a man as with a woman. Uh, Leviticus 20.13, it's a law stating that lying with a man as with a woman is an abomination punishable by death. 
Judges 19.22 is the story of Gideonites wanting to sleep with a visiting man in the area, very similar to the story of Lot and the angels that were there. Romans 1, starting in verse 18, Paul describes Gentile ungodliness, including exchanging the natural function for the unnatural. And in 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 9, it's Paul's statement that sodomites, as it says in the NRSV, will not inherit God's kingdom. And in 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 10, it's again Paul's statement that sodomites are among the lawless and disobedient. So books have been written on these passages, so I'm not going to go into them. If you go through the process of examining each passage and work through the process of developing a biblical worldview on this issue, I believe you will arrive at a similar position of mind. These don't address issues around transgender people or gender dysphoria, just homosexual behavior and those who practice it. So there's only seven. So why is there so much focus on this? Well, there's a, it's a good question. Um, there are definitely other biblical issues of importance in American culture, but it's partially the gay rights movement's fault. I mean, you can't really throw an issue into the public space, scream for attention and change, and then complain when those who oppose the changes pay attention. I mean, gay rights advocates have tried to make people aware of LGBTQ issues, and they want people to be more accepting of differing sexual orientations, identities, behaviors. This has helped create the very focus that this argument now criticizes religious people for. And to be honest, I mean, let's face it, it's much easier to throw stones at issues and ideas that seem foreign to us as Christians. Many Christians find it easier to focus on same-sex marriage than deal with sexual sins in our own lives, like lust, premarital sex, pornography, adultery, divorce. We've got the whole range of relationship sin right inside the church. Churches are filled with imperfect people, and it is so much easier to rally everyone to fight something that's outside, something that's different. It's very difficult to take a long, hard look at our own lives and deal with what's buried there. And the church in America is too caught up in politics and protecting the status quo. We should be focused on making disciples. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't vote or support Christians who run for office, but that's not the mission of the church. And it shouldn't be our primary focus. The church has done a lot to help people and has had a positive impact on society. But we do like to yell about stuff we don't like. We want to protect that status quo. And sometimes we do focus on those seven passages about homosexuality too much. There is so much more to life than who you want to have sex with. But those passages are still there and they do still apply. We can't ignore them, especially when the culture around the church is shifting on this very topic. Now more than ever, local churches need to know what the Bible says and how they will interact with a world that disagrees on this and other significant issues of faith. That's why I'm doing this episode, not because of a lopsided fascination with the subject, because lots of Christians have questions and they look around at the world and they see it changing. And it is so much easier to go, well, I guess I'll just go along with the flow rather than stick to biblical principles as they have understood and studied them. Another question that comes up is, if homosexuality is so bad, why didn't Jesus ever talk about it? This is actually a fairly common argument for accepting homosexual behavior in the church. The point being, if Jesus didn't talk about it, either he didn't think it was a big deal, or if you take it further, he might have even thought it was okay. 
Now, there are three major problems with this argument. First, it uses the logic fallacy called the argument from silence. Argumentum excellentio, if you want to impress your friends in Latin. In practice, this argument might be something like this. The person didn't speak against it, so he must be for it. Or if Jesus had disliked homosexual behavior, he would have said so. He didn't, so he must be okay with it or must not care about it. If he didn't like it, he would have said he didn't like it. He didn't address it. Therefore, he must like it or not be bothered by it. The problem here is that not having a record of someone saying something doesn't mean that that person is for or against it. You simply don't have a record of it. Jesus didn't mention a lot of things. I don't know if you know this, but Jesus never mentioned rape or bestiality. Now, no one would ever think that Jesus was for those things. So why would him not saying anything about homosexual behavior mean he was for same-sex relationships or didn't have an opinion about same-sex relationships? Okay. Let me stop right here. I have to stop for a second and make sure you're crystal clear on something. I am not saying, I am not saying that consensual sexual behavior between same-sex adults is the same as rape or bestiality or anything like, like that. I'm just saying the same argument that's being applied in this argument can be applied to any number of behaviors that Jesus never talked about. If it makes you feel bad, let's talk about Jesus never mentioning eating dessert. So we could use the argument saying that Jesus is against eating dessert. We're basically just making stuff up and putting words into Jesus's mouth. John 21 says Jesus did a lot of stuff that wasn't recorded. We just don't know everything he said or did. The second thing that's wrong with this, and it's another complication for this argument, is that for it to have any merit, you have to discount and discredit all seven of the Old and New Testament passages we mentioned before, and the passages that talk about sexual relationships being between a man and a woman. Speaking of passages that talk about what sexual relationships should be, that brings us to number three. Jesus did speak on marriage. In fact, in Matthew 19, starting in verse 4, he said, haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. The two will become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, man must not separate. So this same conversation is also recorded in Mark chapter 10. Now, he was specifically answering a question about divorce and goes on to say some pretty hard things about divorce and marriage that many in the modern church don't like. But for the point of this discussion, it is that Jesus did, in fact, talk about the marriage relationship and what it should be. We don't have a record of Jesus specifically mentioning homosexual behavior. We don't have a record of him talking about a lot of sinful behavior, but we do have other passages of the Bible which address it, and we do have Jesus instructing us on what a marriage relationship should be. On the whole, this argument from silence does not hold up. There is absolutely no indication that Jesus differed from a traditional view of marriage, but there is indication that he thought marriage should be between one man and one woman. Jesus didn't talk a lot about this issue, but our culture has pushed the idea that our sexual identity is our entire identity. But we are so much more than our hormones and desires. We are made in the image of God. We are much more than our sexual desire. That should not be the center of our lives. Ultimately, just like single people who never marry, Christians who have same-sex attraction should live a life of celibacy. 
This is the position that many churches in America have. And many churches will not host a gay wedding or allow a minister to perform one. Which brings us to the last question of the day. Why should churches be allowed to deny a same-sex couple's request to be married there? Now, this is less a biblical question and more of a legal and societal one. Burgefell versus Hodges isn't the first time that the Supreme Court has ruled against a position the church has held. Roe versus Wade is a huge ruling that still impacts our culture. Pro-life people say it's murder. Pro-choice people say it's a woman's rights. But this is different in that churches don't perform abortions. Churches and pastors do perform weddings. Now, most reasonable people don't think churches will be required to perform religious ceremonies they don't agree with. But a few years ago, no one thought florists and bakeries would be compelled to perform services for religious ceremonies they didn't agree with either. In that barred in that Barna survey I mentioned before, done after the same-sex marriage ruling by the Supreme Court, 20% of respondents said they thought a pastor should be legally compelled to perform same-sex weddings, even if they had a religious objection. I believe this issue is going to eventually end up in court. What if a gay couple just wants a nice church wedding? They just want to rent the building. If they're suing to use florists and bakeries, how long until a church faces a lawsuit over this? The core of this issue is public accommodation. If a publicly or privately held entity is deemed to be used by the public, it can be held to the same non-discrimination laws as any public place. If a church lets their facility be open to non-religious events and allows members of the public who are not members of the church to rent the facility, they may find themselves in the situation where they have a facility that is considered a public accommodation. They could find themselves under fire if they refuse service to a gay wedding parties, but allow other non-religious events on campus. Now, a church can limit this by renting only for events that closely follow the religious mission of the church. I know several churches who have gone out of their way and gone to great lengths to hold events for communities in order to grow relationships there. They may not be able to continue to do this or risk being held to the public accommodation standards. Now, Pat Vaugh from the Council for American Family Association suggested back in 2015 that it may become necessary for churches to remove themselves from the civil functions of marriage. That is, they may need to only perform the religious ceremony but no longer have anything to do with the marriage license itself. Couples would have to be licensed through a government agency. There are extremists on both sides. Somewhere, someone will put something to the test and lines will be drawn and lawyers will be retained. Churches have a scriptural backing to hold what they believe are God's laws above laws that are made by man. And advocates for the LGBT community have a lot of legal and political weight right now. Religious freedom in America has always had some limitations. I mean, you can't sacrifice your child because you believe it'll please God. But we have also always had a reasonable expectation of religious freedom. I submit to you right now that reasonable may not be the theme of the day. Religious people bear some of the blame. I mean, we positioned ourselves as enemies of progressives in the culture war. Now that the tide has turned, we are still known as that enemy. Why wouldn't they try to make sure we can't fight them again? In their mind, we aren't good for society. We are the people who want to hurt them and hold them back. We have a long way to go in order to repair damaged relationships with those who support the LGBTQ rights. If we truly love them, 
and those who identify as something other than straight, if we love them as we say we do, then we need to build some bridges. Not in support of behaviors we know to be sinful, but reaching out to other people who are made in the image of God, people that God desperately wants a relationship with. Regardless of any changes in the freedom of religious practice, our goal as believers must be to make disciples. No matter what laws are passed, what ideas are held, we must make disciples. That is our purpose. God didn't leave us on a planet so we can force our idea of right and wrong on others. We are the ministers of reconciliation. Our focus isn't making sure people identify what is sin and what isn't. Our focus ought to be pointing people to Jesus. That's our purpose. We need to respond with truth and love, always pointing people toward Christ. Thank you for joining us today. This is actually the last episode of season one, so stay subscribed to make sure you don't miss an episode of the new season. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star rating. That helps other people find the podcast. If you didn't enjoy the podcast, well, feel free to send me an email and complain. Or if you have questions, send me an email and maybe I can answer them for you on a later show in another season. Send them to scott at scottlinkmedia.com. Thanks, and I'll talk to you next season.